We're going to turn to God's Word. If you have a a Bible with you, we're at Colossians chapter 3. If you're visiting with us, we've been working our way through the New Testament book of Colossians. Uh, We took a break last week because we had a visit from uh, Dr. Derek Tidball. But we're returning to where we left off uh, two weeks ago. Uh, And as a church and as Christians, we firmly believe, and I don't think it's too strong to say this, we firmly believe in the importance and the value of of family life. In uh, 1998, 11 years ago, the Home Office produced a consultation document on supporting families. And here's just one quote from that document. Families are the heart of our society. Most of us live in families and we value them because they provide love, support and care. They educate us and they teach us right from wrong. Our future depends on their success in bringing up children. That is why we are committed to strengthening family life. Two and a half years ago, David Cameron spoke to the National Family and Planning Institute and he said that family life is the most important part of the well-being of our society. During the past two weeks, uh, there's been a lot of talk about family life on the news And in the press 10 days ago, and I know we've mentioned this a few times during the last couple of weeks, but 10 days ago, the Children's Society launched a report which, amongst other things, challenged the selfish and the individualistic culture that we as adults have created. And a few days ago, figures were then published confirming that couples are now less likely to get married than ever before leading one social commentator to say the decline in marriage is worrying because of the very clear evidence of the importance to children of growing up in a married family. And so in light of all this, it it sort of seems appropriate and maybe even timely that we come to Colossians chapter 3 and verses 18 to 21 where Paul specifically addresses the issue of family life. And he offers some interesting, apparently controversial, and certainly misunderstood advice on how to make family life work. So we're going to read these four verses together. Now, normally we've been taking big chunks of Colossians. Uh, Tonight we're only looking at four verses. Uh, So we're picking up where we left off. Two weeks ago we looked at verses 1 to 17. But tonight we're just going to look at four verses. Now normally I do encourage us to stand for the public reading of God's word. Although it is only four verses, I'm still going to ask you to do that. So let's stand together. In in the, the version of the Bible I'm using, this is headed Instruction for Christian Households. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Grab a seat. (laughs) Before we get to the actual uh, content of those verses, let me provide a little bit of background and and context. Jesus is not only our saviour. Okay, that's, that is what we have been celebrating, the fact that Jesus is our saviour. But as Christians, we also believe that Jesus should be what? Our saviour and what? Lord. Lord of every aspect of our lives. I think we actually said that, or certainly it was on one of the slides as we came to communion. That communion was for those 
who have accepted Jesus and confessed him as their saviour and their Lord. And there are two key areas of life over which Jesus must be Lord. Our character and our relationships. Jesus must impact who we are and how we relate to one another. In the first 17 verses of chapter 3, Paul deals with character transformation. He talks about the vices that we should be eradicating. All those things that we looked at two weeks ago that we must be putting to death. We must be getting rid of them. But he also talks about the virtues we should be embracing. And we looked at a number of those, things that we should be clothing ourselves with. I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. But in these four verses that we've just read together, Paul turns his attention to relational transformation. But here's the problem we face whenever we come to verses like this. And it's a very real problem. Because what Paul and the rest of the New Testament writers, for that matter, have to say about relationships is, from our perspective, profoundly counter-cultural. Let me explain what I mean by that. I don't think it is an exaggeration to say that the culture of the Western world today is based largely on a philosophy of individualism. The primary social unit today is the person. We live in a world of I and me and mine and myself. And that has been reinforced by that Children's Society report, which has said that as adults, we have created this selfish and individualistic culture, and it's damaging our kids. So we live in a very different culture today than what Paul did in this context that he's writing into. It was radically different. People perceive themselves as people in relationships, not people in isolation. We tend to see ourselves as in isolation. So people in Paul's day gained their identity from where they came from, from their parents, from the group they were part of, from their tribe, their clan, their city. That is not necessarily the case today. And therefore we face a very real challenge in reading the New Testament letters with our 21st century Western culturally conditioned mindset. If we go back to the the beginning, the very beginning, a little bit of congregational participation. What was the first thing God declared was not good even before sin entered our world? For man to be alone. Adam's loneliness, Genesis 2.18. And God's way of making it good was to provide him with a companion because God designed us to be in relationship. And Adam and Eve enjoyed a perfect relationship, a perfect family relationship. But then sin showed up and the fall introduced negative aspects into relationships. Aspects like jealousy. And we saw that, we see that played out in Cain and Abel's lives. Aspects like suspicion and abuse and power all entered into relationships. And they have impacted, and the fall has impacted all subsequent relationships, including our own, and they all exist in the wake of sin's contamination. So relationships are now what, or not what they were meant to be. But we also believe as Christians that Jesus came to reverse the effects of the fall. That God's redemptive work through Christ involves the renewal and the restoration of so many aspects of our lives, including our relationships, including how we relate to one another, not just in our families, but broader than that, but all particularly within our families. And so as we embrace Jesus as Saviour, 
And as we honor Jesus as Lord, then our relationships are to be transformed, or certainly should be being transformed. And therefore, as Christians, we must continually examine the quality of our relationships. We must constantly look at how are we relating to one another within our families? How are we relating to one another within our workplaces? How are we relating to one another within our communities and within our church? Because how we relate is a litmus test of our Christ-centered spirituality. And that seems to be Paul's challenge in these four verses. And in fact, it's the challenge elsewhere in the rest of God's word. How do you relate to one another as Christians? What is different about the way you relate to one another now that you are a Christian? And so from verse 18, or yes, from verse 18 of chapter 3, through down to the first verse of chapter 4, Paul addresses various members of households. So he writes to wives and he writes to husbands. He writes to parents and he writes to kids. And because in Paul's culture many people shared the same space or adjoining spaces, Paul doesn't just write to the biological family, he also writes to those who would have lived under the same roof. So he also had something to say to masters and to slaves or to temporary employees. Now in many of these households there would have been an accepted code of conduct. And this is what we have really here in these four verses. It's a code of conduct which acknowledged the different categories of people who existed within a household. But it didn't just acknowledge the different categories. It actually set out guidelines on how they were to behave towards each other. How they were to relate to one another. These codes of conduct are found actually in various places in the New Testament. But they also existed outside of the New Testament at this particular time. In history, But Paul's particular code here is significantly different from all other codes. And it's significantly different for two reasons. Here they are. His emphasis on the principle of Christ's lordship, something we've begun to talk about, and also his emphasis on mutual responsibilities. Just to talk about Christ's Lordship, if you scan your eyes down not only the four verses we read, but really right down to the first verse of chapter 4, seven times in the space of those nine verses, Paul mentions the Lordship of Christ in one form or another. So he says, wives, you're to submit as is fitting in the Lord. Children, you're told to obey for that pleases the Lord. Slaves, you're to serve out of reverence for the Lord. And the point is that Paul is not so much interested in social convention, but he is passionate about the impact that Christ is to have on our relationships. Paul is reminding his readers here at Colossae, and also us, that we cannot separate family life from our spiritual lives. And so he places our relationships with each other firmly in the context of our relationship with Christ. Your relationship as a Christian with Christ has got to have an impact on how you relate to one another within your families. And the issue that's absolutely critical to get hold of is this, that to relate to one another in the Lord means that we will conduct ourselves with each other in a way that is consistent with Christ. Doesn't contradict Christ. That means we don't treat one another within our families as we like. We don't take advantage of each other. 
We seek to serve rather than be served. And we love and we put the interests of others first. And two weeks ago, whenever we were talking about all those things we were to get rid of and all those things we were to clothe ourselves with, they apply as well within the context of families. Get rid of anger. Get rid of rage. Get rid of malice in your life generally, but also within your family life. Clothe yourself with compassion. Be kind to one another in your families. Be gentle. Be humble. Paul's code of conduct here, when properly understood, was and is revolutionary. Why? Because Christ was or is at the centre of it. There were lots of codes of conduct about how you went about living in family life. But Paul's was different because Christ was at the centre. Paul emphasised the lordship of Christ. Secondly, the second distinctive mutual responsibilities. Paul's code also involved this principle of mutuality. Other codes tended to talk about the responsibilities of wives and of children of slaves. And then the privileges of husbands and fathers and masters. They appeared to be very one-sided codes. But in the New Testament, both partners in the relationship have responsibilities that are pointed out to them. So in Colossians 3, it's both husband and wife, child and parent, slave and master, who are reminded of their duties and their obligations to one another. And that is what puts Paul's code in a category all of its own. And we all know that this theme of mutuality is not unique to Colossians. Listen to these words, and again, well-known words, whenever Paul was writing to the Christians at Ephesus. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes on in that particular text to detail what form submission would take. First for a wife. Submit yourselves to your husbands. But then for the husband, what it means is you've got to love your wives as Christ loved the church. This whole idea of mutual responsibility. One of, the, one of the, the problems with some of our English translations is that if you, I don't know what version of the Bible you have, but often verses 21 and 22 are separated by a paragraph break which is not particularly helpful, not part of the original text. And therefore many people begin Ephesians chapter 5 at verse 22 and miss verse 21. You can have a wee look at that when you go home or have a look at it now. In 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul is writing about married life, there is a similar sense of mutual responsibility that he goes about stressing. He says, the husband should fulfill, and I'm quoting, his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way. This idea of mutual responsibility. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Now, in a sense, with all that as background, what I want to do is then turn to Paul's specific directives. And so the first group of people within the household that he addresses are the wives. Okay, and this is where we take a deep breath. (laughs) Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, let's be honest. Those words have been the subject of so much misunderstanding over the years. And so we do need to approach them and read them with great care. And as I say, we are conditioned by the lens which we read these words through. The first thing to note is that actually this is addressed to Christian wives, not to women in general. 
This is about the Christian marriage relationship and how a Christian home should function. This is not about the role of women in society generally. Okay. Secondly, we need to explore what does it actually mean to submit? What does that word mean as compared to what we think it means? This is a word that did not carry overtones of subjugation or conquest and inferiority that has been attached to it today. There's no doubt that that has happened in our world. And so, for example, this has nothing to do with inferiority. And I know as a church you've you've been through a lot of this and I know you believe this, but it's not about inferiority. Because we know that the same word is used of Christ submitting to his Father in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we know there is no sense in which Jesus is inferior to the Father. Biblically, submission means to humbly serve and to take the lower place in the relationship. It is to be opposed to self-assertion, to be opposed to insisting on one's rights. It means to accept one's place rather than getting out of line by striving for more position or for more power. And submission may include the idea of obedience, but it's a broader term than obedience. It is to give yourself to another. It's to follow the example of Jesus who, though he was equal to God, did not cling to his divine honours, but willingly humbled himself. And as Nigel was reminding us this morning, became human. And the sense here in Colossians is that Paul is inviting wives to voluntarily submit themselves to their husbands, just as Christ voluntarily gave himself for us. And that is why Submission is fitting in the Lord, as Paul writes here, because it is consistent with the pattern that Christ has set for us. Now, there is no ducking the fact that Paul's advice was particularly pertinent to wives in the early church. Within Jewish culture at that time, women did not have a lot of status, did not have a lot of liberty. Jesus had come along and he had given women dignity. He had given them freedom and it kicked against the cultural norms. But the New Testament does seem to imply that things had got a little out of balance. And therefore some women weren't exactly handling their new status or their liberty very wisely. And so here in Colossians and also in Corinthians and and maybe even more so in his pastoral letters, Paul needs to remind wives of their duties and their obligations without, and this is a difficult bit for us to get our heads, without detriment to their worth and their freedom. And the other key issue with submission, and I think this is where we do go wrong, is that it doesn't mean the one or the ones to whom it is being offered, and in this case it's being offered to husbands, have any right to take advantage of voluntarily submission. There is nothing worse than seeing a husband twist this teaching and use it to justify becoming domineering, demeaning or even abusive in his relationship with his wife. Richard Foster, well-known, highly respected Christian writer, points out that submission has its limits. Here's what he says. The limits of the discipline of submission are at the points at which it becomes destructive. It then becomes a denial of the law of love as taught by Jesus and is an affront to genuine biblical submission. It's therefore false thinking that there is some biblical authority structure which puts the husband in a superior position over his wife. 
and permits him to exercise an authoritarian or totalitarian hold over her. Or to put it slightly more simply, this verse provides no justification for male chauvinism. Derek Tidbull, who was here last week, has written a really helpful commentary on Colossians. And he, he, he writes this in commenting on this text. Male chauvinism owes its origin to a distorted macho masculinity which is the result of the fall rather than to our being redeemed in Christ. So the key point is that Paul invites wives to submit to husbands. He never commands the husband to make his wife submit. It is something that his wife offers her husband. So first of all, we need to recognize that this is written to Christian wives, not women in general. We've got to be really careful that we don't use this verse to construct a wider theology about the position of women. Secondly, we need to get the grips with exactly what does it mean or what did Paul mean when he used the word submit. And finally, in a sense, we've got to understand what does it mean to submit as is fitting in the Lord. Christian wives are in the Lord and therefore they're called to follow Christ's example of humble submission. Okay, let's move on to husbands quickly. Uh, Because this time Paul says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And again, we need to break this down because we all know there are different words for love in the original language. And you don't need me to give you a lesson in that. And here is the Greek word used, as I understand it, in this context. And to understand that, we've got to go back to Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul uh, amplifies the command to husbands like this. He says, husbands, you've got to love your wives, but the quality of love is as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, the love, husbands, that you have for your wives has got to be of an ultimate kind. It's deeper than mere affection, goes beyond friendship, isn't purely defined in terms of sexual instincts or romantic feelings. All those elements may be part of it, but the love that Paul talks about is defined by the way that Christ voluntarily gave up his own rights and his own status and offered himself as a humble servant and a willing sacrifice on our behalf. And what Paul says to husbands, and this is a tall order, But what Paul says to husbands is you must love your wives in this unreasonable kind of way. Which doesn't actually make sense. You're to forgo your own rights and status and sacrifice yourself in order to serve your wives. Her interests must come first. And that was completely unique in the ancient world. No other household code used this particular word for love to describe a husband's responsibilities towards his wife because this household code was unique to Christian homes. And what Paul requires of husbands is huge. And if we think, and this is a strong statement I'm about to make, but if we think that what is required of a wife is unreasonable, while what is required of a husband is in some way easier, then it only goes to show that we haven't fully understood what is being said. Husbands, got to love our wives as Christ loved the church to the point where you're prepared to die for them. And here's the issue, and this is where it all holds together, that if husbands are to love their wives like this and not be harsh with them, 
as Paul says in the second half of that verse, then it is so easy for a wife to want to submit to that quality and that character of a husband. Okay, let's leave husbands and wives because I'm starting to feel under pressure. Paul then turns to kids. And there are some kids here, so uh, I hope this doesn't sound too strong. Even Liverpool supporters. Uh, Paul then turns to the relationship that exists between parents and children and he begins by addressing the kids. He said, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. And in a sense, as people have said, the command to children is almost stronger. It's more specific than the command to wives because this is not about general submission, but this is an unquestioning and obedience. And in case there's any doubt about the limits to the obedience, Paul actually says, obey your parents in everything doesn't appear to me much space left for the idea of kids negotiating. But here again, we've got to keep right in the front of our minds the fact that as far as Paul is concerned, he's writing to Christian families. And therefore, Paul almost assumes that what he says to kids, he, he, he honestly believes that dads won't make demands upon their kids that are unreasonable. He's writing to Christian dads. So he thinks, do you know, I've said so much in this letter already about what you have to get rid of. Get rid of anger and malice and rage and all of that. And therefore, kids, obey your parents because you see in your parents a different way of living. You see something modelled that is beautiful. You see your parents clothing themselves with all those things we thought about two weeks ago of humility and gentleness and kindness. And therefore you will want to obey them because they are different. They're not making unrealistic demands of you. They are making biblical requirements of you, not unrealistic demands. And Paul gives a reason why kids should obey. He says, because this pleases God. And since the Old Testament and right back at the Ten Commandments, we know that kids are urged to honour and obey their parents. And it's still God's advice via Paul in the New Testament. And in addition, we know that obedience pleases God because Jesus, the perfect son, obeyed his father. And therefore, what Paul is really just saying, look, kids, I want you to model Christ. I want you as Christian kids who have accepted Jesus as Lord of your lives to model your master in your obedience to your parents. He spoke often of how he obeyed the father's commands. Obedience was a mark of Jesus' life towards his father. And we know that that obedience didn't cramp his style, didn't stunt his growth. And therefore, for kids to obey, that should be the same experience for them. It's something that is best for them, causes them to grow and flourish. And then Paul addresses dads, because we can't divorce this, this command from what he then says to dads. Dads, don't embitter your kids. For they will become discouraged. You know, children need discipline, but but so do parents. And so some people, whenever they read this, but then think to themselves, well, this is, it does say fathers, so does this let mums off the hook? Is it okay for mums to come down hard on their kids and to crush their little spirits? Because there's nothing said here to the mother. Well, obviously not. 
And the reason this is specifically addressed to fathers, as I understand it, rather than both parents, is because of the place the father held in the ancient Jewish family. Dad was the all-powerful figure at the heart of the family in Jewish culture. A father could determine who his child could marry. A father could even dissolve his son's marriage if he chose to do so in this culture at this time. The father had the right of life and death over his kids and continued to exercise that authority over his kids even when they were growing up and when they were married. But in our society it is different, thankfully. And therefore this command is not just for fathers but it is for both parents. We're not to embitter our kids. What does that actually mean? When Paul says, don't embitter your kids, what does that actually mean to you? And many of you here I know have kids. Paul amplifies again this elsewhere by saying, you're not to provoke them. You're not to irritate them. You're not to exasperate them. In other words, you're not to infuriate them. You're not to wind them up. You're not to make your kids angry. And there's a clear reason for this, because they will become discouraged. Or actually what the original, as I understand it, translation implies is they will be deprived of spirit. In other words, if you embitter your kids, if you crush your kids, if you infuriate your kids, if you wind your kids up, then they'll become as if they're like non-entities. You'll knock the life out of them. They'll become non-persons almost is what Paul is saying. And no parent wants to do that to their kid. We all want to see our kids grow up and fulfill their true potential. And therefore we have got to be careful as Christian parents to create an atmosphere of affection and positive love and encouragement. And of course, where necessary, that includes wise and consistent discipline. The hope being that parents treat their kids in such a way that the kids find it easy. And against this whole idea of mutual responsibility, that the kids then find it easy to obey their parents. If I know my mum and dad is my best interests at heart, doesn't want to wind me up just for the sake of it but actually it's my best interest in heart, then I'm going to obey them. Now as I finish, I, I, I realise there's been a lot in these four verses, and I know I've only in some ways scratched the surface of certain aspects, and I maybe haven't gone deep enough for some people in other parts of it. And I also know that it's absolutely far easier to talk about this than do it. Far easier. But within these four verses, there is a recipe for the creation of a united, harmonious and attractive Christian home where, in a nutshell, wives submit, husbands love, kids obey, and parents encourage, but all done in the context of and as evidence of the Lordship of Christ. But the question is, is it just idealistic? Or is it realistic? Can this actually be done today in our culture, in our context? Well, I do believe it's possible, but only, only as we allow Jesus to transform our relationships. It's only as we allow Jesus to be Lord of how we relate to one another. And it's also only where we don't allow the culture to squeeze us into its mould. Then we can actually model something different to a watching world and something that reflects what I believe is a biblical code of conduct for family life. Let's pray together. Father, we 
recognize the timelessness of your word. The truth of your word. The challenge it brings to us. We also recognize the difficulty it sometimes presents to us. But we thank you, God, that your word contains life. And it contains the ability to transform our lives. To transform our characters. And to transform how we relate to one another. And so we do pray for family life in our culture at this time. Whenever so much is being said about the importance of families. When so much is being said to challenge us about how we have created this individualistic culture. God, I pray that as Christians and as Christian families, we will model something different, model something attractive, model something that reflects your values to a watching world. And so for those of us who are here wives, those of us here husbands, those of us here kids, those of us here who are parents, God, help us to wrestle with your guidelines for how we are to relate within the context of our homes to hear what you have to say to us but not just hear what you've got to say to us help us to walk it out live it out on a day-to-day basis acknowledging that often god as it is with so much of our christian lives the home is the hardest place to do it and so we need your help we ask for your help in jesus name amen